Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. I was out to dinner several months ago and made some new friends. I was telling them about my podcast, and then one of them said, you must meet Ben Feller. I am so glad that that happened because Ben is an excellent communications professional and he talks to us today about being sure you are known for who you are. I asked Ben about brevity in communications, how his experience in the White House has changed his view, and how development is critically intertwined with communications. Ben Feller is a partner at Mercury where he leads media strategy. An award-winning writer, Ben offers strategic counsel on communications after a 20-year journalism career in which he distinguished himself as one of the finest reporters in the nation. Ben specializes in crafting powerful messages for corporations, universities, foundations, and leaders, and in managing complex, fast-moving challenges. He has a rich understanding of how the news media works and how to shape a communication strategy that delivers real results. Prior to joining Mercury, Ben served as the chief White House correspondent for the Associated Press, a premier role in which he led presidential coverage for the largest news organization in the world. He offers expertise on the media, politics, writing and public engagement, and a deep reputation for accuracy and integrity across the political spectrum. Ben has particular experience in the fields of education, healthcare, the economy, national politics, voter attitudes, and civic affairs. Ben's full-time career began in 1993 as a reporter for the Center Daily Times in State College, Pennsylvania. He also wrote for the News and Record in Greensboro, North Carolina, and the Tampa Tribune in Tampa, Florida. A native of State College, Pennsylvania, Ben graduated from Penn State in 1992 with a degree in journalism. He lives in New York City. Now let's get started. Ben, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. I'm really excited to chat with you and get into it. Great. So let's let's start really macro here and talk about communications. And this is sort of an existential question, but how can good communications help you win? Why do they matter? It comes down to defining what are you trying to win? That's where I start every conversation with the clients that I help. Almost every time, the answer to that question comes back to communications. So if you're trying to convince donors to give for a cause, for a project, for a capital campaign, communications matter because you have to have a really compelling, concise, cogent argument. And not just that matters to you, but that matters to them. I've been in this business now for about 28, 29 years. And it really still amazes me how often communications are seen as the thing that you do last. Hey, we ought to think about some way to tell this story. And, and I look at it the opposite, which is you got to infuse the story that you want to achieve and that you want to tell on the front end because it can affect all those other things. It's not an add-on. It's essential. Do you think that people are revisiting their cases and their missions and things like that? Or do you think they're remaining through everything? I think that there's been a re-examination of communications in two ways. The, the first is 
in 2020, there was a tremendous uh, looking inward. How do we survive? How do we protect our people? How do we make sense of the information that's coming at us? How do we stay safe? Mm -hmm. And so anything that was not in that circle really felt like an extra, even if it wasn't or wouldn't normally be because people were in survival mode. So I think in 2021, coming out of that more, um, there's been a reopening of conversations about, okay, let's, let's begin to look externally again about how do we pull people in? What do we want to do? All the stuff that froze is now thawing. So I think that's, that's one change. But I, the other change is I think in 2020, people, uh, in my view, began to appreciate communications more because everybody was somewhere on the spectrum of scared, unnerved, frustrated, um, isolated. And so when you feel that way, you want to feel connected. Well, it doesn't work if you as that individual are just saying, hey, I want to connect. Somebody has to connect back with you. And so organizations that were proactive about that were more successful as long as they did it well. We should probably know how to explain ourselves really well. We should probably know how to communicate with empathy and with urgency. Uh, who, who, look, who does that? We'll call so-and-so. Well, if so-and-so isn't there or they're used to writing coding, you know, and communicating to audiences about sensitive topics isn't their thing. It's forced organizations to say, you know, that's a skill that we really should have and not just when we want to put out a press release. And so I think it has forced organizations to, to really um, wrap, grapple with this communications imperative. No one's going to just figure us out. We have to go to them. Yeah, empathy and urgency could not be more spot on. The places that waited to communicate I think hurt the places that weren't empathetic hurt. I mean, it's sort of, it's tough because in a lot of these scenarios, it feels like no matter what you come out with, people will have some issue, take some issue with your stance. I think, I think that's right. But people might have an issue with your stance if it's on a social issue, for sure. If it's on something sensitive, I don't think that it's a given that people will have an issue for your stance. If you just committed in the beginning of a natural a national disaster to say, we're gonna really make sure that the community we serve is served and hears us. How do you think being a former journalist yeah. impacts your viewpoint and do you see parallel skills? And of course there are, but I'd just love to hear which ones you think there are. The main way it affects my thinking about communications and the work I do as a communications advisor is I start every challenge with the mindset of the, the, the reader, because I was a former writer, so I think like the reader, or the listener, you know, or the donor. And you might say, well, that's, that's intuitive, but it's really not, because what most places do is they start from the viewpoint of themselves. What's the message that we want to get out? And they spend an enormous amount of time on that. And then the product, whatever the product is, oftentimes isn't written for the person they're trying to reach. And so as a former reporter who then went into consulting, I bring that mindset into me. It's almost a purposely cynical mindset, which is you got to work really hard to get them to care. You know, why? What's their problem with our argument or our foundation? I don't have any problem with it. They, they might even be open to it. They might even be looking for you. But if you start the engagement in the mind that we have something to say they're going to listen. I think you're behind. 
You know, if you start the engagement with, we have something to say, and it's our job to compel them to listen in how well we tell it, how brief we are, how compelling we are, how well we differentiate ourselves. We do it uh, in an alluring way. We do it um, in a way that, that uses visuals, um, that uses tone, that uses urgency. You're putting a lot of effort into getting their attention. And, and I think that's the reporter's mindset is not just getting the story, but getting the story that matters to the person on the other side. So you mentioned brevity. I think that's huge. It's something I think about a lot in my outreach to donors. And I've noticed that there is not as much brevity as I would like to see in the higher ed sphere. Why is brevity so important? People are busy. And the way the reading experience works is who honors your time by getting to the point in the most interesting and most concise way? You know, again, that's not, a, that's not a mindset that, that a lot of organizations take is I have to honor their time. But think about, you know, I'm, a, I'm an old newspaper guy. So I read a lot online, but I still get the paper. And I think about this example a lot where you're reading the front page of whatever paper you like. And, you, you know, below the fold, there's this interesting feature story. And, you know, you get to the end of the page and it says continued on page A8. So you go to A8, right? You with me? And you picture it. And all of a sudden it's it's what we used to call a double truck. It's both sections. I mean, this is like a Sunday investigation. And you go, oh my gosh, like I didn't know I was getting into that. This is a really interesting story, but this is like a commitment. I'm gonna put this aside and get some coffee and come back to it. Or I'm gonna to go to a different section, but I'll get back to that at some point and why, what happened? Well, because when you started the, the reading the article, you thought you had one thing and then you get to another, right? There's nothing in that that suggests we're, we're foreshadowing to the reader here's what you're gonna get. Well, now you gotta commit time, you gotta commit attention, you gotta push aside other things. And so there's a space for long form and I love long form, but I think when organizations do long form as their default mode, we have a lot to say, we have a lot of people to quote, we have a lot of boilerplate we wanna include, you're risking losing attention every time. And I think when people talk about brevity, particularly in higher education or in philanthropy, they almost process it as like, well, that means we have to dumb it down. That means we have to be less sophisticated. It's not true. It's much, much harder to write short than write hard. But when you do it well, you can absolutely connote sophistication. So I think another really important thing is confidence. As fundraisers, we are representing our institutions and our institutions may or may not be in a confident phase of their leadership. But I'm so curious to hear from you how you think we can communicate confidence, both on behalf of our institutions, but then also on behalf of ourselves. Great question and really tricky because confidence is fleeting. You know, it's inconsistent, especially when you're talking about the confidence of an institution, because it, it can be hard to sustain the tone of an institution. It changes. It changes based on leadership. It changes based on outside events, you know, internal events. Yeah, it's all fluid. Um, it's, it is. And so I think the main way to have confidence is, I suppose it's twofold in my mind. The first of all is, first of all, you gotta have the goods, right? It's hard to fake confidence. So if you're a, a university or a foundation and you're struggling to convey confidence, you gotta go to the root of, well, who are we? What are we good at? What do we stand for? And if you're wrestling with that, because there's a change of leadership or there's a sort of divisions or you're trying to catch up with the times and you got to say, are we, are we shifting our strategic focus here? 
I wouldn't view that as a, as a matter of lacking confidence. I think it's a matter of strategic priorities and focus. And so, so you got to have the good. So get that part right. You know, determine internally who you are, what you stand for, what you want to be. Then go and tell the story. So I think confidence relates to a sense of um, sureness about, about yourself and your organization. And if you're not sure or, you know, your numbers are down in your earnings or your performance is down, it's going to be hard to tell that story with confidence. So sort of circle and, and get the story right the best way you can and then go. And I've seen organizations who are coming out of something express real confidence because they've been honest with people. Yeah, we've gone through a tough time. Here's what happened. Here's where we are. Here's what we're doing about it. This is a great day for us. And they didn't fake it, right? The confidence was real because they wrestled with the internal issue. The other way I'd answer that is for some reason, organizations that do something really well or several things really well often lack confidence in how they storytell because they, they think that they will come across as arrogant if they communicate with boldness. So if you surpass the first hurdle, which is you got to have the goods, then you get to the second one, which is, can we communicate our story with boldness and coming from reporting? It's I, I lean that way, right? Figure out what you're going to say and then say it really well. Don't figure out what you're going to say and back into it or say, we're one of the places that do this well, or we do it really well, but we're going to make you read seven paragraphs to figure it out. Say it. Because guess what? The people that you compete against, even in consensus-driven organizations or fields, I should say, they're out there trying to win. Your competitors are trying to win. So if you compete in that sense, even if it's not you know, hand-to-hand combat, but in the comp- quiet competition for prestige or dollars, and you go out there and you sort of try to win, we don't want to say we're the best at this or we're distinctive in this because others might do it to be arrogant. So let's just say it and, and sort of hope for the best. You're not mm-hmm. going to win unless you have decades of such a built-in reputation that you know your 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 excellence is known. In most cases, you got to go say it. And so sometimes in the the projects I work on, we pull up the client's confidence by reflecting on what they do well, but reflecting on going back to, as we talked about at the beginning, what are you trying to achieve and saying, you got a mismatch here. You can't get this if you're only down here. So bring up, bring up your assertiveness. And then, you know, oftentimes I'll write language and, and they'll sit with it. You know, one of the best compliments I, I ever got was when we were going around the room at the end of a university identity project and everybody was saying, well, how does this seem to you? And one of the leaders said, this is how we always wanted to talk about ourselves, but never did. Ooh. Right? Like, so it took somebody from the outside to come in, investigate, report, distill, present, and say, yeah, this is how we should talk about ourselves. You know? So, but uh, the, the best part about that is that's an easy problem to fix. You know, it's really, it's a matter of uh, determination and uh, declaration. You don't have to reinvent yourself. And, and you know, listen, I'm never going to go forward with any argument that any person or institution should be arrogant. That's not the argument. There's a big difference between boldness and arrogance. And, and so to me, that goes back to confidence. Hmm. Yeah, it also makes me think about the idea that you get back what you put out. And so if you're going to put out the highest form, you're going to get it back, whether it's in the form of talent or the best students or whatever it may be. I think that's right. I think people notice 
when you're finding that right balance. This, this surprised me a little bit when I got into consulting in this space, in the philanthropic space and in the higher education space, there can be a tendency to, uh, to just not want to do that. You know, to say that's crass, we, we can't really put out our best self. Um, and I think there's, I absolutely think there's a way to do it w without offending people, but, but by alluring them, right? That's the way to do it. So I have to ask this just because I very rarely interact with people who have been in and around the White House, but what were your top learnings from reporting from the White House? Well, now I'm uh, several years removed from it. Um, some days it feels that way, some days it doesn't. But I, so I think my answer to that uh, changes based on how much time goes by. There were certainly things I learned about writing and reporting at the highest level under the highest pressures, absolutely. And there were you know, innumerable things I learned about subject matters. Because covering the White House, you're, you're covering uh, a nuclear deal with Iran and wildfires in California and the potential for you know, a military strike and a, a major personnel announcement all in the same week, if not the same day. And you really have to understand those topics and the nuances. So a lot I learned there, but I think probably the biggest thing I learned was about myself. And it goes to the point you and I were just discussing about confidence. Um, you know, when I took on the White House job, I was in my mid thirties and I had covered national news for the AP, but not at the White House. I mean, you're, you're covering the White House and you're doing it for the Associated Press where you're expected to be first and of course always expected to be right. The standards are extraordinary. And, and um, to, to sit here and say, well, I got the job and I had earned the job and so therefore I was confident, it would just not be true. Because the, the challenge and the number of, sheer number of things I didn't know was, was unbelievable. But what I did know and what they knew was that I could do it. And that if anybody was gonna drive me to do it, it was gonna be me. And so that was the bet they placed on me and I placed on myself. And so looking back on it now, I thought, wow, I, that was a really hard thing to figure out. You know, and so it affects my work now when there are multiple challenges and huge deadlines and competing pressures and you say, listen, you know, I was on a surprise trip of the president to Afghanistan and anybody who's been in that job as a reporter, you're not allowed to say anything to anyone because if the word gets out uh, going into a war zone, then they'll scuttle the trip. And as we were getting close to landing and we were allowed to call in, you know, in darkness flying in and found out that the story had leaked back in Washington. And so everything was going sideways and it was dark and dangerous and, the, and Air Force One was going, I don't know how many miles an hour. And it was just complete chaos in the press cabin because we couldn't tell if we were allowed to now tell our desk, hey, go with the story, we're here or not because there was a report that had come out and the report was partly right and partly wrong. And I had to make a decision really on behalf of the press corps, my organization, and the broader White House that we're going with the story that the president is here because once the AP says it, it's on because our hand had been forced because the story was out. And so, well, not only is it out, but it's wrong. We got to correct it. And I didn't have time to think about that. And I had to make a call and it was a big deal that, that there had been a leak. It wasn't our fault of the people on the plane. Bottom line is when I think about that, that moment, right? 
the darkness and the chaos of making that decision on my own, the things that I face now day to day are not as weighty as that, even if I feel that they are. They're just not. That was a that was in sense as a national security decision. It was a journalism decision. It was an ethical decision. That's the biggest takeaway for me is when times are kind of crappy, it's sort of have some perspective. Like you've you've done you've been in hard situations. Yeah. Do you think that you made the right call? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were it was a terrible situation for us because we did all that work and then where the rug was pulled out. But you know what, in perspective, again, it goes back to the reader. It wasn't about me being angry or who got the scoop or who got it wrong. It was like, to the reader, it's like, what the hell's going on? President's in Afghanistan. Okay, that's a big deal. What's he doing? What's he saying? Is he safe? What does it matter? Okay, I'm going back to my life. They don't care about the inner machinations of the press corps. So yeah, I, I did do the right thing there. And just thinking about it makes me nervous again. But, <laughs> but yeah, you got to make some gut calls sometimes. That's what experience does for you, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I love that we got that that little personal story from you. And I would love to, well, not little, it was a big story, but <laughs> I would love to move into storytelling and to get more of your expertise on storytelling. And I want to start with asking how messaging for universities is different for messaging for corporations. I think the main way it's different in going back to the sort of boldness conversation is if you are built as a place of higher learning and research and creating citizens, then the idea that you're going to do commercial messaging is crass. So corporations are trying to produce um, support around products, right? And, and so there's nothing crass about that. They're offering a product or service. They're in a competitive space. They want to put out a message that gets you to, to think about them and to support them and to buy their stuff. And so it's transactional. Uh, universities struggle with that because um, it's not supposed to be transactional supposed to be about education. So in that sense, there are different missions. Um, but the reality of course is, and people inside universities know this, it's not a dirty little secret. There are admissions officers and chief financial officers and provosts and presidents and development officers who say, yeah, we're not just producing the next round of graduates. We're running an operation here in a competitive environment that needs revenue in order to grow and to succeed, right? You, we can't just live in La La Land here. You've, you've got to make money to support the enterprise and to recruit the best and to have the next discoveries. And so how does communications play into that? Well, figure out how to convince the students and the, and the staff and the faculty who could go anywhere to come to your place. And you can't just do that with this hands-off or an institution of higher learning and creating the, the next citizens to support democracy. We got to make the case if you come here, it will be worth it. Your life will be better. The return on investment to you in society will be great. And we're better than the other guys. So how do you say that in a way that doesn't sound like you're selling cars, right? That's the, that's the challenge. But you, can't, you have to accept the premise that yes, you have to make a competitive case. You can't just, maybe some in the, in the um, faculty would say, this whole thing is off-putting. I don't want a tagline. I don't want marketing. You know, I don't work for a company, I work for a university, that's fine. But there are people at that university who have to be thinking this way, because otherwise, um, if you're not competing in the marketplace with your marketing and your communications, 
you're not going to win, you know, and, and that will affect ultimately everyone, you know, then you hear a budget cutbacks. How do we get in the situation? Well, you know, you're not, you're not getting the revenue that you used to. Well, how do we fix it? Our academics are top notch. Yeah, they are. How's your storytelling? You know, why is that important? Well, because it affects the money, right? It affects the following. And so as long as there are people who believe in it and understand, um, that's, I think that's the challenge. And, and, um, and so, you know, in that sense, corporations and universities are A-like. You got to tell your story and you got to understand your audience and you got to do it really well. What do you think are the most basic elements of a well-told story? And this is another case where my journalism background plays in well to my answer to that question. So people think about reporting as who, what, where, when, why, right? The basics, tell me the story and give me those facts. Find them out for me so I don't have to do it myself. I think the basics of a good story um, for organizations or for companies, for me, comes down to the questions that I base my work around, which is who are you? What do you do? How are you different? Why should people care? You'd be surprised, I think, about how many places struggle with those four questions. They struggle because they haven't been forced to answer them. They struggle because they did answer them well, but then over years, everybody added a little bit here and there. It's like a website that has 77 links and you're like, how did, why did we do this? Well, somebody wanted to add something, right? Yeah. So it becomes mushy. They struggle with it because they do well on the who we are, maybe their, their sort of mission and vision statements, but what we do and how we're different and why you should care, those are like those external questions and they haven't really spent time on that. They almost have to translate their value to other people. It's like, no, I translate my value to myself because I decided to come here or attend here or work here. And now it's up to everybody else to catch up and, and it's not. And so in that sense, those are the elements of the story. There, you could go in a hundred different directions with this conversation. And I love these conversations about storytelling because there's flow, there's ethos, there's tone, there's character development, all those things are part of the story. But if you want to distill it, as you asked, it's, it's who you are, what you do, how you're different and why does it matter? And, um, and often in the work that I do, I literally build my language around those questions and work through it with the university or the philanthropy. And then that language becomes the basis for how they tell their story. And you'll find it on their website. You'll start to see it in their speeches. You'll see it in their marketing. They might pull out a piece of it and make it a script for the video that students see when they walk in to the student union building, right? It has all these applications. And, and in doing that, you know, it's interesting because uh, this is hard stuff. It sounds simple, but it's hard. And the reason it's hard is not just because people can't think about how to craft a sentence well, it's because they have different opinions about those answers, right? Especially at a university. How much do you lead with your research enterprise? How much do you lead with the social and cultural engagement that might be attractive to a 17 year old, but isn't to the tenure professor who doesn't wanna be known as a party school? What if you're all of those things? How do you capture them in a way, right? That is the right balance. That's hard. And so you gotta to get to that right place. And, and the, to wrap up this part, the important thing to do is to not go to what, what Chancellor once told me was the mushy middle. I put up on the screen how the school was currently describing itself as our starting point. And he called it oatmeal because it was so mushy. And, yeah, it was, it was mushy and plain and didn't really offend anyone, but also didn't attract anyone. Because mm -hmm. it, it was a platitude. It was very safe. 
so that's you know that's the those are the questions that I think of mm -hmm. uh, the the elements of the story in the context of the conversation we're having, and then if you say okay we've got that down great now but we have a different kind of storytelling to do now we want to tell the story of our faculty well that's not the same thing as telling the story of the overall institution that's part of the institution but if you want a story tell now about your faculty now you can make it even more personal now you can tell the story of an individual or a, of a study abroad trip right these things are not competing with each other. It's just sort of going from the macro to the micro. And so then the, the elements of the story might get a little bit different. Then you're really into sort of character development, plot of what happened on a trip. But I still think it comes back to that distinctiveness and clarity. So it sounds like if people are listening and thinking, how can we revamp our case or how personally can I get more excited about my institution? Sounds like you should sit down with a pen and piece of paper and think about those questions. Well, yeah, I, I'd start with, and you don't have to do it alone. I mean, I would, I would find the people in your community at that university and say, listen, I think we're not known for who we are. We're not appreciated for all that we do. And we have to stop waiting for that to happen. And we have to stop quietly blaming the audience, you know, or the media for not getting it. Let's do it. You know, then if they don't take it up, we can blame them, but you know, let's do this better. And so that might be a small circle. Like, well, how do we do that? Well, who's our best writer? Who's our best person to sort of um, sit at the table from leadership who will have some skin in this or could say, hey, go figure that out. And do we have the right partners on hand to, to help us? I think you're hundred percent right. That's if I'm listening to this, that's what I would do because you should feel excited about it. Take pride in what you have and, and work to get this right. What I wouldn't do is say, well, yeah, we could focus on those substantive questions and get our message right. But how about instead, let's enliven our social media channels. You know, like it's not about the story, it's about the channels because people wanna focus on the channels because they think that that's the answer. Hmm. You know, the latest thing in 2021 is different than 2020 or 2019 in terms of videos or, you know, or should we storytell on LinkedIn or Twitter, one of these things is dead. No, it's come back to life. No, you know, like those things are relevant and there should be people at the university who are thinking about those and adept at them. But the, those channels are a way to tell the story. They are not the story. And Still that, need to go back to the root. You gotta go back to the root yeah. and get it right. You know, who are you? Yeah. You know? And if you say, oh, we, get, we got it, here's who we are. Okay, let me hear it. And you read it and this is like, you just sounded like 14 other places, including the place I just dropped off my cousin at college to start the <laughs> semester. So what? Well, then if I think that, you know, everybody else is going to too. Yeah, but our Instagram feed is great. I'm like, okay, you, you know, that's not enough. And so I'm pretty passionate about this because I think these places are different. Yes, they might have the same sort of quad on campus and they might have the same choice in dining halls more or less. But man, there are some things about a campus that are specific to its identity and its feel. And that's the part of the job I love is when you find those things, grab them, lift them up, tell them. And then the people are saying, well, this isn't the same as the other place I went to. This is different, tell me more. And that's what makes it sticky. That's what makes it sticky, absolutely. So tell us about some recent campaigns you've worked on because I love hearing you get excited and would love to hear what you're enjoying. Well, one that's top of mind because we're we're on the cusp of, of finishing this is uh, there's a university in Eastern Pennsylvania, Moravian um, University, and I can talk about this because uh, you know they've they've become really our partner and, and are going to uh, feature our work in some of their own storytelling. 
Um, but this is a school that goes back to pre-colonial times, tremendous history sitting in Bethlehem, which has its own, you know, storied place. The school is moving from a college to a university. And so they use that change as a reason to reevaluate our, their identity and their brand. And so I work with uh, a design partner uh, and we, we've come up with a way to tell their story. So my focus of the project is on the narrative. And it's exactly what you and I just discussed, right? Who are they? And, and for that one, I did a se separate section. How does it feel here? You know, a lot of your listeners uh, are familiar with, in terms of how process works, a request for proposal, an RFP, you know, and places will, will list a lot of things that they want. And I look at those deliverables and I say, okay, but I don't know where I'm going to end, right? The story depends on the work. So let's see where the story goes. So I did a section on how it feels here. Why is that important? Well, if you're a student looking at choices and you're, you know, getting pamphlets mailed to you or you're doing an online tour in a pandemic, it's tough to see how it feels. But if you go on campus and walk around and start to see the hammocks and the colors on the benches and the students who all seem to know each other on the way to the, the union building and you get a tour and you see the 24 hour lab and how they work in, you know, music and, and you know, food to keep kids you know, awake when they're pulling all-nighters and all of these things. And you're like, okay, well, there's the academic offerings and there's the great music program, right? And there's the downtown vibe, but there's the whole thing going on here on this campus that feels different. And then when you layer in, you know what? We're not a startup that's trying to make our way. We've been here for going on three centuries. You know, our history, we're one of the oldest institutions in America and we got that new vibe. Wow, okay, so where's that in the story? What yeah, I didn't know that about Moravian. What does that have to do with our mission statement? I'm like, it doesn't, right. does not have to do with your mission statement, right? Your mission statement is, has serves its own purpose. I'm talking about the ethos and the vibe and the fit. Fit is really important to students who have choices. You know, it's also important to their families who are paying for private education. So that identity project is, is um, working towards completion and the narrative and the design elements will be unveiled later this summer into fall as they sort of uh, formally unveil their university transition. And so, you know, it's both top of mind as we have this conversation, but I'm also proud about it because you'll be able to see that their best story is being told because of our partnership and because of the reporting types of questions that we're asking. Right. And, and who are you asking? Are you working with the trustees and the leadership? The ones that work exceptionally well start with the president's office or the chancellor's office. Different levels of involvement from the chief executive, but typically the directive and the commitment coming from the head of the administration affects the pace and the purpose of the project because that person in charge, even if he or she is not a communicator by trade, in this case, it, you know, the president is, um, but there's a, there's an importance level to it. Again, communication is not as an add-on, but as essential. And so then the workflow often goes through the communications team and, you know, head of communications, head of marketing. Uh, in this case, there's sort of a core team built like that. But then when we did our discovery, we're pulling in faculty, we're pulling in students, we're pulling in alumni, staff, sometimes people from the business community. And, you get this cross-section of views. And then you step back from it and say, what did we learn? So in this case, we kept hearing about the transformation of students, 
but in a very specific way, not just we take 17 year olds and turn them into employable graduates at 21, right? The sort of before and after, but this transformation of students who go there, you start to see how their confidence rises like semester by semester, you know, how they walk to campus, how they carry themselves, because some of these are first generation students and they find that they chose the place that makes them feel like, hey, if you want to be in a club, be in a club. If you want to start a club, start it. So now you've moved from the back of the classroom to you're the leader of a club. And that story we kept hearing over and over again. So mm -hmm. like, how do we how do we deal with that transformation? And so that came not from us as the consultant, it came from the cross section of people. And we typically lean on the university to, to steer us. Who should we be talking to? And we'll offer guidance because they know their people. Right. They know who needs to be in the room. And so, so yeah, I mean, I could give you others, but that's one that I'm, I'm proud of right now and excited to see how it plays out. So are you taking new clients? I mean, if people are listening and they would love to learn more, how can they find you? Sure, absolutely. Always taking new clients. <laughs> uh, so I work for a strategic communications consultancy called Mercury. And um, so certainly you could find me there, uh, mercuryllc.com. Um, and I'm, I'm up on all those social platforms that I mentioned earlier. Um, and, you know, this work that you and I are discussing about finding the identity of an organization really applies across many, many fields. It goes to the point that you were raising is the journalistic skills of finding the story and the right questions and the right people, and then finding out a concise, compelling way to say it, it, it transcends organizations. Well, thank you for giving us so much to think about. And I do think we're at a unique time as a society, but also as an industry to think about how to enter this new chapter and this new fiscal year and level up. Right. So I would love to end with my signature question, which is what do you know for sure? I know for sure that the story will always matter. I, I get asked, to this day, you know, is the media dead? You know, is the media coming back? You know, is the newsroom gonna make it? And, and my answer is yes, the, the news business and the media will always survive regardless of what platform is up or down. Um, no matter how small the budgets get in these places because the story will always matter. And that gives me uh, not just enduring hope about the news business, but enduring hope about communications and connectedness, whether it's your love of magazines, or books, movies, podcasts, people love a good story and it will always matter. And so for those of us in communications, it offers a lot of hope and a living. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. I love Ben's reminder that we should be thinking from our opponent, donor, reader, fill in the blanks perspective, not from our own. If you want an introduction to Ben or to learn more about his work, please let me know. You can be in touch via LinkedIn or Instagram at devdebrief. I can't wait to hear from you.